This morning we're going to be, or this afternoon we'll look at uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verses 11 to 13, but I'll just read through verse 14 to the end of the letter. So this is how Paul concludes his letter to the Corinthians, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray for his blessing upon our time. Our Lord Jesus, you tell us that the Spirit gives life, uh, the flesh is no help at all, and that your words are spirit and life. Thank you that you have spoken your words through this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and that you have preserved your word for us today, that through it we might hear you and we might worship you. We pray that you would give us life through your word. We pray that you would send your spirit. Thank you uh, that the spirit of Christ, who uh, the spirit who dwelt in you, Lord Jesus, is the spirit who also has been sent to, to dwell in us, your people. And we pray uh, that we would hear the spirit speaking through your word. And we ask all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know the saying that uh, sometimes you are on an emotional roller coaster and a good movie or a good book with a good plot will take you on an emotional roller coaster of good and bad, of being really happy and then being really sad. Uh, We could say that the letter of 2 Corinthians is like an emotional roller coaster. Uh, Many people have said that this is Paul's most emotional letter as he writes with uh, an open heart to the Corinthians, and he says, my heart is wide open to you, open up your hearts to me. Uh, He writes about much of the pain that he has experienced in his ministry, and especially with the Corinthians. He talks about how they have caused him pain. When he went to visit, he calls it a painful visit. And when he had to write a letter before this one, he called it a, a letter with much anguish and many tears that he wrote and not only did they cause him pain but he writes about the pain that he's experienced in his ministry he says that that he felt that he had the sentence of death on himself that he despaired of life that paul thought that he was going to die only in a book like second corinthians do we find paul opening up his heart in this way And so there are a lot of lows that Paul writes about, but Paul also writes about many of the highs, the good experiences, the joyful experiences that he has. He talks so much about the hope that he has in this letter. 
He talks about how God comforted him in all of his afflictions. He talked about how he was comforted by the coming of Titus. He talks about the glories of being a minister of the new covenant, that he is the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are, being, those who are perishing. He talks about how his ministry is so much greater than that of Moses because the Spirit changes people's hearts through his preaching. And how he gets to preach the gospel so that people's lives are transformed as they behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And by beholding his glory, they are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And so you have the the highs and lows. His outer man is wasting away and yet his inner man being renewed day by day. He's groaning in this tent of his heavenly, of of his earthly body, and yet he looks forward to the freedom of having a renewed body. He says he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul has opened up his heart in this letter. He's gone on an emotional roller coaster, and, and he's taking the Corinthians and us with him. Paul has covered many topics. We've been in this letter for 10 months. I don't know if you realize that. Uh, This is sermon number 35, I think, in 2 Corinthians. And we've covered covenant theology, suffering, ministry, irresistible grace, what heaven is going to be like, what it means to be unequally yoked to unbelievers. Uh, Your favorite part, three passages on giving we covered. Uh, boasting, what it means to boast, who is a false apostle, what that thorn in the flesh was, and then last week we talked about self-examination. So we've covered all kinds of topics. But here we come to nearing the end of the letter. And Lord willing, next week we will end the letter in verse 14. But here we come today to verses 11 to 13. And if you've ever been on a roller coaster, uh, you know that for most of the time that you're on the coaster, you're you're really not even taking a breath. You're screaming. And then you come as the coaster slows down and gets to that flat part. You finally can breathe. You take a deep breath. You pause. You look over at your friend and you smile and you talk about the, the coolest part of the roller coaster and you can start to process everything that's been happening because while you're on the coaster you're just screaming for your life and so Paul as he gets to verses 11 to 13 he's concluding his letter he is pausing he is coming to the bottom of that coaster and he's basically just summarizing he's summarizing everything that he's been trying to say to the Corinthians. But he doesn't do it with all of his emotions, uh, opening up his heart wide to them, with all these great images that he's given us in the letter. He just gives it to us very simply. Six commands, six instructions. Listen, guys, here is what I want you to do. So pause Take a deep breath. Consider everything that I want you to do after reading this letter. 
That's what Paul is doing. And so as we come now to nearing the end of the letter, that's what we want to do. We want to look at six commands that Paul gives in verses 11 to 12. And we'll include verse 13 in there. We want to look at these six commands. Most of our time is going to be just going through each one of these and what they mean. And then at the end, we'll have some application for us as a church. So, let's begin looking at these commands. Uh, A few general comments before we look at these uh, one by one. First of all, all of these commands are in the second person plural. And so, they are addressed to you all. That doesn't quite come across in English, but they are commands to you all. So Paul is not saying, hey, Jim, you over there in the church, you need to rejoice. No, he's saying, you all, Corinthians, rejoice. All of you be restored. All of you be at peace with one another. And so as we look at these commands, all of us have to come and say, what part do I have in fulfilling these commands? How can I help this church do these things because I'm a part of this church and these commands are for all of us in the church. Uh, The other thing uh, that I wanted to point out is that you're probably going to notice as we go through these commands that uh, my translation might be different from your translation and uh, sometimes I agree with the ESV and sometimes I don't and Uh, So because the command is basically usually here one word, it's pretty important to figure out what this one word means. And so I'm going to point out multiple times. Well, sometimes it'll be correct in this translation or sometimes it'll be correct in the other one. So hopefully that is not too confusing. But I'll try to uh, show you what I conclude is the best way to understand each command, even though it might not be exactly what you have in your Bible. Uh, Then the last thing to notice is that if I'm interpreting all these correctly, I believe that the first three are how they are to relate to Paul, and then the second three are how they're to relate to one another. So hopefully we can understand that better as we go through them. Okay, so first command, Paul finally says in verse 11, finally, brothers, Rejoice. So finally, it means he's getting to his conclusion. When he uses the word brothers, that's the word to refer to the church, the church in the language of a family. And so we can understand this as brothers and sisters, all who are members of the church. And we can use the word brethren, maybe as a more general term. So Paul is writing to all the brethren the brothers and sisters of the church. And so he says, rejoice, rejoice. That's the first command, okay? So rejoice. Now, your Bible might say something like farewell. And so some people interpret this as a word that just means goodbye. Uh, Like you would say rejoice as you're waving and saying goodbye to somebody. In our day, we might say something like, Blessings to you as you walk away and wave at them. Uh, uh, A well wish for them as you are saying goodbye. 
But I don't think that this is just Paul saying goodbye because he's got five more commands after this. And so this is given in the form of a command. It's not saying farewell. He, he is commanding them to rejoice. Now this reminds us of what Paul has said earlier in chapter 1, verse 24. He said that he was a worker for their joy. He's working together with them for their joy. So the purpose of Paul's ministry to the Corinthians and preaching the gospel was that they might have joy. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, he says something similar. He says that his joy would be, he says, my joy will be the joy of you all. So their joy will come with Paul's joy. So when Paul says rejoice, this is summarizing the purpose of his letter and the purpose of his ministry because Paul wants them to accept him. He wants them to believe him as a true apostle. He wants them to accept his work because his work is for their joy. By receiving him as an apostle, by believing the message of the gospel, that is what is going to bring them joy. And so, for us, the true joy that's going to come, the, the way that you really are going to rejoice, is only if you believe the message of the gospel. If you accept and believe and then grow in understanding the gospel, that is how you rejoice. That is what Paul wants for us. Well, now we get to the second command. The second command is be restored. You all be restored. Now here again, uh, your Bible might say something like, be complete or be mature. Uh, the word here for be restored is the word that has to do with completion or being filled up or being mature. So you can think of it like a, a pitcher of water and you pour out some water from the pitcher. Uh, the pitcher is not full. The pitcher is not complete. And so you refill it. And when you refill it to the top, it is then complete. And so some people understand this, that Paul is saying, be mature. In other words, there is something lacking in you. There is something lacking in your spiritual growth, in your faith. And so you need to complete that and, and be complete or be mature. But it seems that what this word literally means is to be restored, not just to be complete. And it makes sense to use this word if you're thinking about the church. We've seen that there's a problem in the Corinthian church where some had followed after these super apostles. There's now a group of them that wants to be restored to Paul. But some of them are, you could say, on the outside. They, they are still following these super apostles. And so in that sense, if you think of the church like the pitcher, 
Well, some of the people have left the church, maybe physically or not, but but they are not in good standing with the church. They have not been restored to the church. And so Paul is saying, be restored. Those people he desires, as we saw last week, he desires for them to repent and to come back. They need to uh, see their sin and then return. And so that will bring completion. The church will then be whole again. The church will be restored. But again, this is also related to Paul himself. Those people to be restored to the church need to acknowledge Paul. Paul is the true apostle. Now, in my Bible, it says, aim for restoration. That word aim is not in there when Paul wrote it. Paul just said, be restored. But I do think that the ones, the, guy, the people who translated this are, are onto something. They, they understand that restoration can't happen on your own. One side or one person cannot make restoration happen. What one person can do is aim for restoration. So yes, Paul wants these two parties in the church to be restored, but all you can do is your part and aim for restoration. This is what happens in marriages. Uh, It's sad when there is a spouse who desires to maintain the marriage and to continue to be in the marriage, but the other spouse has decided that they no longer want to be in the marriage. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you are married to an unbeliever and he or she consents to, to, to leave you, they decide to go, let them go in peace. Because basically there's nothing you can do about it. If, if the unbelieving spouse just wants to leave, you cannot bring restoration on your own. You pray for, for God to work. But if they leave, it is okay to let them leave. Because restoration takes both sides to do the work. People today like to do what's called ghosting. Maybe you know that term. They ghost you. Uh, You have a relationship with them. You're friends with them. And then they, they get mad at you and they don't respond. All of a sudden, one day, they they don't answer your calls. They don't answer your messages or emails. If they're coming to church, they just fall off the face of the earth as far as coming to church. They just ghost you. Well, if people ghost you, you can't be restored. But you can aim for restoration. You can do what Paul says in Romans 12, 18. As much as depends on you. Live peaceably with everyone. Do everything as far as depends on you to be restored. And so that's the call for Christians. Let's look at the third command. Command number three, be comforted. Be comforted or be encouraged. Now here in my Bible, here we have another Uh, 
oddity is that my Bible adds the words one another. I don't know why, because those words are not in there. It just says, be comforted. Be comforted. Now again, I, I don't think that Paul really means here, be comforted by comforting one another, by encouraging one another. I think he's talking about himself. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, if, if we, himself, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Paul's making the same point. Again, that all of his affliction in ministry and suffering for the gospel was for their comfort. And all the comfort that he receives from God to sustain him, to continue to do his ministry, is for their comfort. As, as they look at his life and they see how God has comforted him, they too are comforted. And so based on Paul, how, how Paul is using the word throughout his letter, when he says to them, be comforted, he's again saying, receive the fruit of my ministry. Receive the fruit of the work that I am doing for you. Be comforted because I'm being afflicted for your comfort. Be comforted because I am being comforted for your comfort. So be comforted. Be encouraged as you receive the benefits of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. So those are the first three commands. They seem to be related more to Paul. Now the second three relate to the church and with one another. So now look at the fourth one. Command number four. Agree with one another. Agree with one another. Now here, you actually do have the words. As Paul wrote them, he did say one another here. So he's saying, agree amongst yourselves. Agree with each other. Now, the word that Paul uses here, agreeing, has to do, what it really means is to be of one mind. Paul wants churches to be of one mind. You know the saying, agree to disagree? Sometimes it is good to agree to disagree. Uh, when you're at Thanksgiving with your family members and you have a bunch of unbelieving family members and, and maybe somebody brings up something political or something very controversial, you don't want Thanksgiving to be a fight. Just agree to disagree. Okay, they see it this way, I see it that way. Okay? That's... That's all right at Thanksgiving. But in a church, we don't just want to agree to disagree. Oh, I'll go along with it because that's the way they do things in the church. But I will mutter under my breath how much I don't like everything that's being done. I will drag myself to this church even though I don't really like it. But I feel like I have to come to this church I can't really get out of it. No, that's not what the church is to be. We are not just to agree to disagree on things, but to actually be of one mind. Now, on some small things, it's okay to have differences of opinion. We can disagree about 
which English Bible translation we prefer. That's no big deal. But on the big things, on the things that our church believes and the things that we practice, we all want to be of one mind. Not just go along with things, not just agree to disagree, but to be united, to be of one mind. Our church doesn't do this, but maybe you've been at a church where they vote on practically everything. And uh, let's say the church needs new hymnals. And we're going to order, hypothetically, we're going to order some new hymnals, same hymnal, same words, but the publisher has a green option and a red option. And there are some churches where literally they will make the congregation vote green or red. And what happens then is that the people who really want a green hymnal will go and start playing politics and call up all their friends and their family members who haven't been to church in 10 years and they say, you need to show up on this day to vote because we need to get these green hymnals in the pews. And so the green hymnals pass. 60% for green, 40% for red. Well, that kind of thing causes all kinds of division. And that's just something really silly, like the color of a hymnal. But in many churches, this is how people treat their statement of faith. The statement of faith is the faith statement of the church because 60% of the church wants that to be the statement, and 40% didn't. But that's what goes on the church website. Or choosing a pastor, or choosing a deacon, they get into the position because 60% of the church wanted that person. And so with these major, huge issues, you see how the church is not really of one mind. They are not united. Things get passed because there's a majority vote, but they are not unified. Paul wants the church to be of one mind when it comes to the faith of the church. We don't want you to just say, well, I don't really agree with the Second London Confession, but I'll go along with things because I like the church. No, we want you to be behind it. We want you to say, yes, I, I like that our church has this confession of faith. I like the way our church does things. Imagine you like the church that you go to. That's what we want. Of course, again, like I said, there are minor things that you can have your opinions on and disagree on. We're, we're not a cult that says, you know, you must follow the leader. The leader says that red carpets are the only carpets that God likes. And so you must agree with what the leader says about the color of the carpet. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. You can have your opinions on carpet colors and hymnal colors. But we want to be of one mind on these important things. So Paul says, agree with one another. Be of one mind. Now, number five. Number five, he says, live in peace. Be at peace. Be at peace. 
with one another in the church. Sometimes there are wars in the church. Sadly, sometimes it is over the color of the hymnal. Uh, But it is a sad thing when there is war in the church, when there is fighting in the church. It's painful when Christians war against each other. They are not at peace. Uh, Many people call a building like this, a, um, a room like this, they call it a sanctuary. And a sanctuary is technically a place that is just set apart. And some people would call it a holy place. But a sanctuary, we also use that word as talking about a a safe place, a haven, a place of rest. And so we think of the church as a sanctuary, as a place where there's all kinds of fighting, there's all kinds of drama, there's all kinds of disagreements outside of this church. And we deal with that all week. Maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in your workplace. You have to deal with fighting and disagreement and then you come to church and you feel a relief to be here because you love that we can live at peace together we're not fighting with each other that's a good thing but we need to be aware that each one of us is a sinner And so because of sin, there can be discord that comes in. There can be the breaking of peace that comes into the church. And so we need to work to live in peace, be at peace. Because we all love a church that is at peace. God commands us to live at peace, Live in peace. And then he says, look at the next part of verse 11. He says, there's a promise with this. The God of love and peace will be with you. Now we have kind of a paradox here. If you live in peace, the God of love and peace will be with you. It's a result. It's a consequence. But also, how, do, how are we going to be at peace? Well, it's also God is the cause The God of love and peace will be with you, which will make you live in peace. And so it's really both things. We have this promise that God will be with us and he will bring more peace if we live in peace. The opposite is what James talks about. He says when there is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, these things are earthly and unspiritual and demonic. You want demons working in your church? Or you want the God of peace at work in your church? Well, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, then you will know that demons are working through your church. We don't want that. We want the God of love and peace to be with us. So let's work hard to continue to be at peace. Well, then we come to the last command. The last command in verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You might be getting nervous. What is he about to say about the holy kiss? We should have waited to vote on him until after he preached this verse. Um, Have no fear. Uh, We will not start kissing. 
uh, I will go on the record to say that that is weird. We will not be kissing each other. Now, what does Paul mean, though? What does he mean when he says, greet one another with a holy kiss? Well, in those days, the kiss on the cheek, it's a kiss on the cheek, not the lips. It was a way of greeting people in your close family. People today still do this. You kiss your children, you kiss your spouse. And then Paul says, this is a holy kiss. And so this is not a romantic thing. It's not a sensual thing. It was a greeting. It was a way of showing fellowship. And it was understood in that day to just be a way of how you treat your close family. You greet one another because you love each other. You could say that we greet one another affectionately. So you don't just say hi, but you're glad to see each other. You're affectionate towards each other. Now in our culture, it's probably just going to be a handshake. That's, that's good enough. That'll do. But we could say, well, you know, even in your workplace, you have to shake a person's hand. And there's really nothing to that. But there's a holy handshake in the church, right? There's a handshake that says, I'm glad to see you. I love you. I'm glad that we can be together today. So there's the handshake, and then there's the holy handshake. There's the affectionate handshake. Or some people are huggers. Maybe you're a hugger. Maybe you're the side hug person. Uh, these kinds of things are ways to show your affection for one another in a, in a culturally appropriate way. So, in the church, we should love each other. We should love being around each other. We should love to see each other. One of the things that happens when there starts to be fighting amongst believers, disagreements, is that you start to have less affection for each other. Sometimes you will try to avoid a person. You don't want to talk to them anymore on Sundays when you see them. You might even try to avoid being in the same room with them. You do that thing where you're looking up to see where they are to make sure that you stay on opposite sides and you don't cross paths. And then you see them looking at you and then you dart your head down like, like we're all pretending this game that we're, we're not going to say that we're avoiding each other, but we all know that we're avoiding each other. And if you're doing that, if you're consciously trying to avoid people or you don't really want to talk to this person, you, you, you're kind of like shaking your hand because you're making yourself shake their hand, there's a problem. That's not the way the church is meant to be. It's usually a sign that something is not right and needs to be made right. Because the opposite of avoiding people in the church is greeting one another with this affection. Well, then Paul says in verse 13, And all the saints greet you. All the saints greet you. Paul has said that in the church, as a local church, in verse 12, they are to have this kind of uh, family uh, understanding of each other. But then he expands that in verse 13 to other churches. All the saints greet you. Uh, 
And so we remember that as we love each other in the local church, we also should love other churches of Christ across the world. As the song says, we are elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Now we even have a mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. And so our communion is even with the saints in heaven. So we are part of the one church of Christ, all who believe the gospel of Christ. And so we should have love, we should have care, we should have respect for other churches too. That's why we pray for other churches. It's why we sometimes might do things with other churches. Uh, We might have a a worship service together. Uh, We might preach at different churches. The people who we are most like-minded with uh, in what we believe, we will have the closest fellowship with. We will have the closest prayers, the closest partnership. But we also need to remember that we are to love all true churches of Christ and have respect for them. Charles Simeon was a pastor in Cambridge, England, and when he was a young pastor, he met John Wesley, who was at that time older and well-known, influential man. And he said to him, uh, Simeon said to Wesley, Sir, uh, I hear that you're an Arminian. And some have said that I'm a Calvinist. I suppose that we're supposed to draw our daggers at each other. And then they talked to each other about what they believed. And they found that even though they disagree on some things, there's a lot of things that they agreed on. And so at the end of the conversation, Simeon says, Well, sir, if it's all right with you, I will put up my dagger." And we can unite on what we agree on. So again, beliefs are important. Theology and doctrine are important. We don't minimize those things. But if there are people who truly believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are one with them. All who love the word of God, all who want to submit themselves to the word of God, all who hold to the gospel of Christ crucified and risen. We are one with the church across the world. And so he says, all the saints greet you. All the saints across the world. So, six commands. Be restored, rejoice, be restored, be comforted, be at peace, greet one another. Let's just think for a few more minutes how to apply this as a church. Remember that last week I mentioned Thomas Brooks who said that we need to study Christ, the word, our hearts, and Satan's devices. Well, one of Satan's devices, one of his schemes to get us to sin is that he waits until your guard is down. He attacks when things are good for you. And so we can apply that to our church right now. As a church, we have prayed 
for a long time, that we would be of one mind. And you have been praying before you had any idea who I am for, for a new pastor and praying that God would bring unity and one mind as that happens. And now uh, you have a new pastor. You think everything's good now? Smooth sailing now? We can, we can rest now? No. Now is when the work really starts. Now is when the prayers really need to start. Because now is when Satan would love to just blow everything up. Satan would love to just have our church at war with each other. So be aware of Satan's devices. Let's pray, pray continually that we would be of one mind. That we would live at peace with one another. You can't do any better for practical advice than for what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Let's live out 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Be patient with one another. Love does not keep record of wrongs. Love is not resentful. Don't keep records of each other's wrongs against you. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love bears all things. Believe the best. Assume the best. Don't assume the worst about each other. May we love each other the way Paul instructed the Corinthians. Remember, he wasn't writing chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. He wasn't writing that to a couple about to be married. He was writing that to a church that was fighting. Be patient with each other. Believe all things. Hope all things. So, we are getting to the bottom of the roller coaster. We take a deep breath. We've seen all of these problems in the church of Corinth. Paul says, pause and think. What kind of church do you want to be? Let's be this kind of church. Let us be of one mind. Let us be at peace. Let us love one another. Let's work to put into practice these six commands. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your grace and your love in saving each one of us here who knows you and trusts in Christ. We thank you for your wisdom that in your plan you have established your, your church to be the bride of Christ and to be your people. And that you call us together in these local gatherings. And we pray that knowing the reality of sin that is in our hearts, knowing the devices of Satan. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us from this sin and from these dangers. Keep us from disunity and discord. We pray that you would give us a harvest of peace 
and that each one of us would be a part of cultivating that, of working for it. We ask, Lord, for uh, your Holy Spirit uh, to be at work among each of us and corporately as your body. And we ask for these blessings through Jesus Christ.